It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if your Bible's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, again, we've been uh, walking through at least some of these passages in 1 Corinthians 10, talking about uh, just Paul's exhortation to the Corinthian church about idolatry. And uh, if, you, if you remember from last week or last, last session, we were talking about this idea that the first 13 verses is all about the example that Paul is giving of Israel as a warning against idolatry. And then in the second half, which we're not really going to even look at, but in the second half of chapter 10, uh, Paul is examining this idea of the spiritual danger of idolatry, which really is just kind of summarizing this idea that when we participate in idolatry, it is a it's not just a physical thing, it is a spiritual reality as well. And Paul says that when we do that, we are participating with demons uh, in the engagement of idolatry, which is a scary thought. Uh, <clears throat> we mentioned last time as well, just for the sake of review, uh, that God provided absolutely everything that Israel needed. That as you walk through the first four verses, which I'm just going to read really quick, what you begin to discover is that God supplied that which Israel needed in the wilderness. So this is what Paul writes in the first four verses. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. And we were talking about last time that as you walk through those four verses, what you begin to discover is that here is God and he's given them direction and shelter and protection and deliverance and spiritual headship and blessing and nourishment and testing and instruction and provision and life. And when you're breaking all that stuff up, it's interesting that everything that Israel needed, God supplied. May not be what they wanted, but he gave them everything that they needed. And Paul is using that as an illustration then in the book of 1 Corinthians, saying, hey, Corinthians, just as God supplied everything that Israel needed in the wilderness, so too Jesus has given you everything that you need. In fact, I I mentioned this uh, last time as well. I I love this passage in, uh, in 2 Peter, but this is what Peter says. Seeing that Jesus' divine power has granted or given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Isn't that an amazing thought? That everything that we need for life and godliness is found in Jesus. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And I, just as a, one more point of summary I made this statement last time, which I think is really important for us to remember. It's this, that just because we see God's evidence in our lives or in our ministries or in our churches, and whether that be manna, whether it be water from a rock, whether that's the parting of a Red Sea or miracles or deliverance or or whatever that may be, like these micro-revival kind of stuff, that even though we may see God or see evidence of God's work, the reality is, is it doesn't mean that you're actually walking in victory or godliness or triumph or freedom or, or peace or life because we can experience the movement of God and yet still walk in slavery to idols. 
we can still participate in sin. So you are not immune to sin. We are still temptable, and we still have the potential of falling. Now, you don't have to. We have the grace of God. Praise the Lord. But we cannot have this presumption that, well, yeah, God did something in my life 57 years ago. I bumped my head once on the altar, and woo, I'm, I, I will never be, or, or I will never have another issue again. That's not true. That I need to be vigilant. I need to be guarded. I, I need to be always clothed with the armor of Christ in my life if I desire to stand strong against the enemy. Does that make sense? In other words, I, I can't just presume that because God's done something in my life in yesteryear that that somehow immunes me from sin and idolatry today. I need to walk in purity and victory and righteousness and holiness today and actually live by the grace of God today. So in the first four verses then of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is walking through and talking about this idea that Jesus is everything that the Corinthians needed, just as he supplied everything that the Israelites needed in the wilderness. And so too, oh dear modern church, Jesus is everything that we need. But then here's the problem. Though God supplied everything Israel needed in the wilderness, though God was everything that they needed, they fell and succumbed to idolatry. And what I want to do in this particular session is I want to look at verses 7 through 10 very specifically. And in verses 7 through 10, Paul gives four specific examples talking about Israel's idolatry. And so let me just read this. This is the first, uh, or sorry, verses uh, 7 through 10. So this is what Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. For as it is written, this is Exodus, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. So Paul continues and says, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So Paul says, Though God supplied and was everything that they needed, yet they consistently turned to something else. They turned to idolatry. And in verses 7 through 10, in each of, the, each of the verses, he gives one illustration of how the people of Israel turned to idols. And we could, if we wanted to, take, take the next four sessions and walk through these, but that just sounds miserable. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, so what I want to do is I just want to give you a quick overview of the four ways that they committed idolatry and almost give a summary statement for our own souls of what does this actually mean for us today? Because my guess is none of us are creating golden calves. I'm hoping none of us are creating. Of course, if you have as much gold to create a golden calf, come talk to me because you know, we could use the gold. But, uh, but the reality is, okay, we're not doing golden calves, but, but the heart behind the golden calf, we do have that issue. And I just want to talk through those four uh, semi-quickly this morning. So number one is the first picture or the first example, the first sign of idolatry that Paul gives us is that of the golden calf. It's verse 7, and this is what Paul writes. He says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. For as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. 
And he's quoting Exodus 32. And let me just read you the passage from the Old Testament just to kind of give you the overview of uh, what Paul is referencing here. Uh, But in Exodus 32, Moses is up on the mountain. He's talking to God. He's getting the Ten Commandments. And it says that now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Tear off your gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And then here's the statement that Paul's quoting. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Isn't this interesting? They have just gotten to the Red Sea. They have just seen the miraculous work of God with the ten plagues. They have just seen how God destroyed their enemy, Egypt. And Moses goes and just happens to be delayed by a couple of weeks. And they're like, we think he's dead. He's gone. So what's, what can we do? Hey, let's create a God to worship. And so they take the gold, they craft it into this calf, and they begin to celebrate, they begin to worship, and they begin to prostitute themselves with the things of this world. And I don't know if you noticed this, but... God makes this interesting statement, and he says that they have quickly turned aside from the way which I have commanded them. That it doesn't take very long. Isn't this interesting? And this is still true today. It doesn't take very long, even seeing a tremendous movement of God, for things to grow cold in our own hearts. For us to turn aside to the idols of this world and just prostitute ourselves with this world. We are so susceptible to this. Uh, it's interesting, one of the commentators that I was looking this up, that word for play, that they rose up and played, he says that the verb translated to play suggests sex play in Hebrew. And therefore, we are probably to understand drunken orgies. So we're not talking like they played ring around the rosy. Right? They didn't do jump rope. That what they're doing is actually an incredible twist of the very way that you are created as the people of God. They, here they are, they're rising up, they're getting drunk, and they're engaging in sexual perversion before this golden calf that they have made their God. So maybe as a summary statement, uh, there's a great little book that I came across by uh, one of my old uh, mentors and friends. Uh, his name is John Juman. He wrote this, he, he was kind of talking about these four uh, aspects in this passage, and he just kind of gives a summary statement. I just want to give you the four summary statements because... I just, they're very pithy. I just really liked how this was said. 
So this is how he described this whole golden calf thing in relationship to idolatry. He says, The people grew tired in waiting with uncertainty. They became impatient and quickly did their own thing and created something on their own to meet their needs instead of waiting on God for what they needed. Impatience and unwillingness to wait upon God is a clear sign of idolatry that I am looking to someone or something else besides him to meet my need. So you may not be making a golden calf. You may not be even engaging in the, the twisted perversion of drunken orgies. But do you realize that when I am impatient, when I am unwilling to wait upon my God, it actually is a sign of idolatry. That I will start to look for something else to meet that need because I, I'm looking at God saying, God, you're taking way too much time. You're, you're being way too slow in this. So, Lord, rather than waiting upon you, I'm going to turn within myself and I'm going to find something that will meet my instantaneous desire. Are you dealing with impatience? How are you doing with waiting upon the Lord? And yes, it may not be a, an actual golden calf in your situation, but do you realize even the heart of impatience is the sign of idolatry? Uh, the second illustration that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is sexual immorality. Uh, he says this in verse 8. He says, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now, I want to read you Numbers 25 because this is where this idea is coming from. Now, not only was there the sexual perversion in the golden calf scene, but what you begin to see is that in the wilderness, the people of Israel engaged in a sexual twist. Uh, if you follow the story right before this, uh, Balak, who is the king of Moab, comes to Balaam and basically says, hey, could you come and curse these people? They're, they're, they're approaching my land. I, I want you to curse them. Now, we know Balaam because of the whole talking donkey thing. Uh, and it's interesting, Balaam, though he is a prophet and though he is restrained from cursing, remember this? Because he, he'll go and pray and goes, okay, I got a good curse. I got a really good curse but I can only speak what God puts in my mouth. So he stands up and he's about to speak a curse, but what comes out is blessing. And Balak goes, uh, I'm not paying you to bless the people. I'm paying you to curse them. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry about this. I'll, I'll, I'll go back and pray. I can only speak what God tells me, but I'll go back and pray. I'll, I'll come up with a curse. And he goes, oh, I got a great curse. I got a great curse. Psst, blessing. You know, it's just, it's hilarious. Do you know that Balaam is not a good character. He's actually very wicked. And though, yes, he is giving the words of God, and yes, there's only blessing being pronounced through his mouth, he actually is incredibly greedy and he's incredibly twisted. And you actually begin to discover that in other parts of Scripture as they're referencing back to Balaam. And what you begin to notice is that, uh, by the way, even Jesus mentions, I think it's in Revel the seven churches of Asia Minor in the book of Revelation, Jesus is pointing back to Balaam and he's not a good dude. And what you begin to discover is that because Balaam could not curse Israel, he still wanted the payment from Balak. And so what he goes and says, well, Balak, I, I can't actually curse them. God's not allowing me to curse them. But I'll tell you how you can do this. You can actually bring about a twist on this whole thing if you would just start to engage them and intermarry and have them start worshiping your gods. 
So Balaam supposedly gets his booty. He gets his money from Balak. And Balak, in his schmooziness, starts to entice Israel into the worship of the Moabite gods and into harlotry with the Moabite people. And so what you see then is as you come into Numbers chapter 25 is that the whole scene is set up and now they're engaging in the very thing that Balaam had suggested that God had commanded them not to do. Does that make sense? So this is picking up in Numbers 25 and it says this, while Israel remained in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry with Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Now this sounds harsh, but the leaders are not stopping this. They should be the ones that are like, no, no. And yet, for whatever reason, they're allowing it or even propagating this. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, now listen to the arrogance of this man. One of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. I don't know if you see the grotesqueness of this, but not only is Israel engaging in the worship of the Moabite gods, they're also engaging in prostitution with the Moabites. And then in the middle of all this, there is a man who arrogantly takes this woman, brings her before all of Israel, brings her into his tent to sleep with her. Basically boasting, right? Propagating this whole thing. Phineas, by the way, Phineas is a great character. This, this seems rather intense. But he is praised multiple times for his righteousness and his faith. That he takes a spear, marches into that tent, and says, you will not do this in the place of the Lord. And shoves a spear through both of them. Which is a little awkward on multiple levels. <clears throat> and yet he's actually given commendation for that. Now, just some of you have probably already picked up on this. It's interesting, it says in Numbers that the plague stopped and there was 24,000 people who died. And yet Paul says that 23,000 people died. Uh-oh. Inconsistencies. But let me clarify. It seems like what Paul is clarifying is that the severity of the judgment was 23,000 people died in one day. But the total plague was 24,000. Does that make sense? But Paul is emphasizing the fact that of the 24,000, 23,000 of them died in a single day. If you want help with the uh, seemingly inconsistency, which it is not. Everyone okay? So, take all of that, and here's the summary statement. Sexual immorality is one of the clearest signs of idolatry. Instead of looking to Jesus to meet my need and operating within his boundaries, I'm looking to someone or something else to meet my need, 
which takes me out of his boundaries. So you have this idea that a clear sign of idolatry is impatience and not waiting upon the Lord. A clear sign of idolatry in our life is sexual immorality. Any version of the twist outside of the bounds of that God has created. Well, what has God created? It is the covenant relationship between one man and one woman in marriage. Anything outside of that reality is actually a twist. So if you're single, guess what you're called to? Purity. If you're married, guess what you're called to? Purity. And regardless of how, whether you're single or whether you're married, the calling on all of our lives is actually purity. And yes, it is a chastity and singleness and a fidelity in marriage, but it is still a purity that we are, not we are not to have any version of a twist in our lives, whether single or married. Does this make sense? And the moment that there's any twist, the moment there's any sexual perversion, the moment there's any selfishness in the area of my sexuality, that is a clear sign of idolatry. Now, I don't know how you're doing with the first two signs, but this is quite the judgment against our current culture. We are such an instantaneous, we, we, we have to be gratified every single second. We don't, we don't even know how to live with patience anymore. What, what do they say? The, uh, uh, what do they call it? The, I forgot the terminology, the attention span, right, of the modern person is now less than a goldfish. I think a goldfish is at nine seconds. And I think the, the American population is down to seven seconds. That's our attention span. <laughs> that is horrible. Why? Because we're so needy in our, you know, our, our, our satisfaction. If you look at our entertainment, we're, we're, having to, we're constantly flipping the channel. I mean, we're just, we're constantly, we don't know how to be patient. We don't know how to just wait. We don't know how to just be calm before the Lord. I mean, our whole culture is wrapped up in sexual perversion. And we've only gotten to half of these. We better hurry. Let's look at the other two. <laughs> Number three is the testing of Christ. This is what Paul says in verse 9. He says, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Let me give you two other translations of this which may help us. The ESV says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did as they were destroyed by serpents. And the Amplified says, we should not tempt the Lord, meaning to try his patience, become a trial to him, critically appraise him, or exploit his goodness as some of them did and were killed by poisonous serpents. The, the word there for test, it's interesting. It means to, to put to test in order to ascertain the nature of something or this idea of uh, testing to find out the imperfections or faults or other qualities. It can mean to entrap, which is interesting, or to examine. And when you look at that word, it's used four times in the New Testament, uh, two of them being the temptations of Christ, uh, one of them being when the lawyer comes to Jesus to test him, and then our passage. And then that same Greek word shows up in the Greek translation in the Old Testament five times. And of those five times, uh, three of them are in this idea of, sorry, two of them are in this idea of God testing Israel, and three of them are Israel testing God. Uh, for example, when you look at Deuteronomy 8.2, it 
God is testing Israel. It says, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And then he says a few verses later, in the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Do you realize that when God brings testing in our lives, it's actually for our good? It's actually to promote something. It's actually, as Paul would say in Romans 8, 29, that he's using that to conform you to the image of Christ. That the purpose is actually for your good. So he's, he's examining, he's testing, he's seeing where you're at. But it's very dangerous for us to do that with God. God, I'm going to test you. God, where are your imperfections? God, where are your incongruent, uh, incongruencies? Uh, one of the scholars said that this term could actually be understood as like plain chicken. That, you know, you have these two cars and they're driving at each other at a high speed and you're seeing which one, I'm testing you, are you going to like swerve out of the way? Imagine doing this with God. Where you're starting to play chicken with God saying, God, how far can I go? How, how, how far can I toe the line? So here's one passage, Psalm 78, where Israel is testing God. It says, yet they continue to sin against him to rebel against the most high in the desert. And in their heart, they put God to the test. So when you look at this scene, here are the people of God, and they're starting to test God. In fact, Paul says they were literally testing Jesus in the desert. And the scene is quite, a, quite an interesting one. In Numbers 21, you have this scene where they are rebelling. And God says, okay, uh, I am going to send you serpents. Now, we don't have a lot of time for me to get into this. But I do not like snakes. I don't like, there's a lot of things I don't like, but snakes are high on my list. And I think I can biblically prove to you that they are demonic. <laughs> Maybe not fully, but I, I mean, God made them, but then they were taken over. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I hate, I hate snakes. And I don't know how to emphasize that enough, uh, but I'll, I'll give you one quick story. Uh, over, over at Windsor Lake, uh, I was jogging this a couple years ago. And I'm just, you know, just minding my business, just, just happily going along. And it was about dusk, and there were some shadows, you know. So, and it was fall, I believe, and there was twigs all over the ground. And, and I'm jogging, and I can remember the exact spot I was at, because every time I go over there to jog, I, I have to give myself back to Jesus, because <laughs> this comes back into my memory, and I'm like, oh, Lord. But I was jogging, <clears throat> and, and I was in the air, and my foot was about to come down when the twig that was on the ground moved. <laughs> and so did I. I don't know how I, I don't know what I did, but I somehow got over it, and I have ran the fastest <laughs> I have ever ran. And I'm not a fast runner, but after about a half a mile, <laughs> I... <laughs> I had this thought in my head of like, I wonder if it's still chasing me. <laughs> and my, my guess, it was probably only a little gardener snake, 
uh, and we do have some we do have some like bull snakes around here, but uh, I didn't slow down enough to see what kind of snake. I just noticed it moved, and I moved. And after about a half a mile, I had this thought of like, it could still be there. And so I, I'd already been fasting at this moment, uh, and I was praying. And I just said, Lord, if, if it is still back there, could, could you somehow cause it to be distracted and go somewhere else? Because I, I had these stories from this missionary friend of mine from Africa about the black mamba. And the black mamba in Africa, if you tick it off, it will chase you. And it can slither faster than you can run, which is a problem. And so I, I, my, my guess is, it was not a black mamba, but I wasn't in a rational state of mind uh, when I was running around the lake. I was just trying to get away from Satan. And so, <laughs> so I am running, and I, I look back, and I didn't see anything, but it was about another quarter of a mile before I slowed down because I, I didn't want to risk it. Could you imagine this story? I, I want to read this to you. I, I want you to hear how insane this would be. Okay, listen to this. This is Numbers 21. They set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of their journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. <laughs> so the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord that he would remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and put it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit a man, then when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. I don't know about you. I am so glad I did not live in these days. <laughs> because they were living in tents on the ground where the serpents slither. Which means, where would you have to run? Nowhere. And I don't know how it happened, but could you imagine one morning you wake up and you hear screaming at the edge of the camp? And you start to realize that we have an infestation of what? Snakes. Not just little gardener snakes. Snakes that when they bite you, it's not very long before they kill you. And people are starting to die. And so they come to Moses and say, maybe we, maybe we shouldn't have yelled at you. Could, could you. could you intercede for us with God and, and tell us what to do? And God says, oh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the snake, and I want you to make a copy of it. Could you imagine the poor guy who had to get close enough to one of these snakes, but not get bit, because otherwise he wouldn't have had time to make the bronze one, but get close enough to look at it, to make a copy of it in bronze, and they put it up on a pole. And the idea was is that if you got bitten, then you could run to the pole and stare at the snake, and you would live. <laughs> you gotta admit, that is one of the weirdest stories in the Old Testament. And yet, it was this story that Jesus used in talking to Nicodemus right before the famous passage you know. 
So you know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. But the two verses right before John 3.16, Jesus is referencing this story. Listen to this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus says, do you, know, do you know what that serpent raised up on the pole was actually all about? Me. Ponder this phenomenal thought. Think about this. There is a curse in the camp. What is it? A snake, which I don't think was an accident. Because when you go back to Genesis 3, right, the whole curse, the whole fall of humanity started how? With the temptation of a snake. So here is this imagery of a curse and when he bites you there's only it only leads to one place what is it death folks that's our problem that we have a curse it's called sin and only leads to one place death so what was their solution you take the symbol of that curse and you put it on a pole and i forgot to include the picture but most scholars say that the way that Moses would have taken the, the snake and draped it around the pole, you would have had a main pole with likely a crossbeam, and you would have draped the snake over it. it was, they were likely looking at a snake, the sign of the curse, on a cross. And if I got bit and I had this curse, what do I do? I run and I look at the symbol of that curse, and I find salvation. I find life. And Jesus says, do you know who that is all about? me because i'm going to be the curse on your behalf and i will hang on the pole and if you who are cursed would just come and stare at me you would find life and if you'd actually put your faith and your belief in that the one that's on the tree you find life could you imagine how crazy this would be to get bit by a snake you know you're about to die, but then there's only one means of salvation. What is it? The curse on a tree. So you run over to, to see the, the one, the, the curse, and in faith, you say, God, I don't know how this works, but somehow when I stare at you and I put my faith in you by looking at the bronze serpent, and by the way, bronze is a symbol of both judgment and salvation in Scripture which is a beautiful thought for this snake. But when I stare at that, I find life. Isn't that beautiful? That's amazing. Such a great Christophany of the Lord. So, so bring all that and come back to what Paul is saying. In 1 Corinthians 10, 9, he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. So, so, so here, are, here they are in the wilderness and they're actually testing God. And so God sends them snakes. Now, God uses this as a beautiful portrayal of the reality of Christ. But they're testing him. So here's the summary. Instead of seeking him in sincerity and being truly open to him, you see how far you can go and how much you can get away with. That's a sign of idolatry. That when you begin to test the Lord and trying to see his, you know, what are his imperfections? How much can you get away with? Uh, when I got out of college for a short season of my life, I did some substitute teaching. And it was interesting 
as a substitute teacher, students, the moment you walk in, are always testing to see what they can get away with. Where are your insecurities? Where are your inconsistencies? Where, what, what, how far can we toe the line? We can't do that with God. You can't be like, well, God, I'm, I'll, I'll come to church on Sundays, but, but how close to the world can I live Monday through Friday? You're testing him. And the moment I begin to see how, how close, it's like, that, it's like that question teenagers often ask. It's like, so I, I understand that I'm supposed to wait till marriage for sex, but, but what can I do? Do you realize if you're asking how far you can go, you're, ask, you're asking the wrong question because you're actually testing. And what you're saying is, so there's this cliff. How close to the cliff can I get before I fall off? Do you realize that if you're actually genuinely interested in the Lord and, the, and in the things of God, your question is not how, you know, how far is too far. The question becomes, how far can I run into Jesus? How far away from the cliff can I go? How, how much can I pursue him? Not how close can I get before I, I fall, but how much can I please him? How holy can I become? Do you see the difference? And anytime we're trying to see where, or anytime we're trying to push to the edge, or anytime we're trying to, we can't test the Lord. Because that's actually a sign of idolatry that he's insufficient in our lives. And we're actually wanting something else. We're trying to push his boundaries to see how close can we get to sin before we're actually in sin. And if you're actually walking in holiness and truth and life and purity, that's not the question you're asking. And really quick, the fourth thing that Paul mentions in our passage is complaining. He says in Verse 10, he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. One of the things that is very apparent in the Old Testament is that while they were in the wilderness, they didn't like it. Let me just give you a quick sampling. Exodus 15. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. 16 verse 2. In chapter 17 of Exodus, it says, But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Numbers 14.2, All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. 14.27, How long, says God, shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? Chapter 16, But on the day all the children, uh, Sorry, But on the day, But on the next day, All the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They grumbled, and then they grumbled, and then they complained, and then they complained, and then they grumbled and complained some more. So here's a summary statement. Complaining may be the single most obvious sign of idolatry. When I look to someone or something else besides Jesus to meet my need, I am guaranteed to be disappointed. No one but God can meet my need. When my quote-unquote idol does not meet my need, I become angry and frustrated with it, him, or her. I will, complain about, I will complain about and against it, him, or her. My complaint is a sign that this thing or person was an idol for me and that I was expecting something more instead of looking at Jesus to meet my need. Do you have that issue? 
Do you get frustrated? Do you complain? Because if so, it's a good sign of idolatry. So look at the bookends really quick. On both sides of this, in verse 6 and verse 11, we are told, Paul says, about these examples. He says in verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So why is Paul giving this as an explanation? Why is he talking about all these illustrations and examples? Well, it is so that you would not crave evil things as they craved. He says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I don't remember how, how it's exactly stated, but they said the best kind of wisdom is not the wisdom you experience. It's when you look at somebody else's experience and go, I'm not doing that. Do you realize that Paul is saying God supplied everything that Israel needed? And yet they were prone to idolatry. That, that when you look at their list, right, impatience, sexual immorality, testing, this idea of what can I get away with, complaining, that though God had supplied everything that they needed, they were prone to the heart of idolatry. And now he's talking to the Corinthians saying, oh dear Corinth, you have those same issues. Okay, you're not making calves, but you're walking in this. Yeah, you may not be complaining and you know, getting bit by serpents or those kind of things, but the reality is, is you have that same heart. And can I ask you, do you have any of those signs of idolatry? Are, are you impatient with the Lord? Do you, do you have a hard time waiting upon Him in His timing? Do you struggle with sexual twist? A selfishness in your sexuality that says, well, God, I, I know that you say that, that sex is great and, and, it's, and it's confined to the realm of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman, but Lord, I, I'm impatient and, and I want it my way and, and I, I'm selfish and, and I, I want my pleasure now and I want whatever the version of the twist is in your life. Are, are, you, are you testing the Lord and you're trying to figure out how close to the edge can you get to before you fall off or, or seeing what you can get away with in your own soul? Do you have an issue of complaining in your heart where you're getting frustrated and, and irritated with the people around you because for whatever reason, you're hoping that they would somehow meet and satisfy one of your needs. I've been using this as our term definition of idolatry, but idolatry is looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet my needs. Is that true in your life? Uh, in the next session together, I want to give you Paul's solution, which sounds probably like a miserable way to end, where it's like you bring someone up to the end, you're like, all right, you have a problem? Good. I'm glad you see it. We'll talk about the solution next time. And that's not my intent, but I, I want you just, uh, I know we've been spending a lot of episodes, we've been following this whole series through, talking about signs of idolatry and what is idolatry in our life. But for whatever reason, we in our modern day are so easy and prone to cloak the issues of idolatry in our hearts. It is so easy for us to justify the pride and the arrogance and the, the, the twistedness and the, the things that we turn to in our lives rather than Jesus. And I think before you can understand the importance 
and the effectual work of the solution, you have to know your problem. Do you have an idolatrous issue? Just, just as Israel turned to idols, even though God was moving, even though Corinth was turning to idols, even though God was moving, are you turning to idols? Even though God may be moving in your life? Do you have these positions in your heart where something is sitting on the throne other than, other than Jesus? And if so, can I encourage you, don't justify those. Don't cloak those. Would you find yourself at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I have a problem. And my problem is me. That there's something deep within me where I'm desiring something other than you. And I'm trying to substitute something in your place because for whatever reason, I don't think you're enough. I don't think you're sufficient. Would you find yourself in that posture before the cross and throw yourself afresh upon him and let him begin to reveal himself and change your life and get himself involved? And when you begin to realize how serious this is before the Lord, that when we engage with this stuff, it's like engaging with demons. It's like interacting and playing with demons, says Paul. That's a very dangerous thing, especially as a Christian. Can we not play the games? Can we not justify the behaviors? Can we just be open and honest and say, Lord, I have a serious problem. And it's that you're not enough in my life. We'll talk about the solution next time. But thanks be to God, there is a solution. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I don't know about anybody else, but I, I look at this list that Paul gives, and I'm convicted. Yeah, I don't have golden calves, but man, I have a hard time waiting on you. Man, it's so easy to test you and tote that line. It is so easy in our, in our culture to be impatient and frustrated and irritated and complain and grumble man our whole culture is so wrapped up in sexual immorality and sexual preference and sexual pleasure and sexual and lord it is so convicting to realize that when any of those <clears throat> things are in our lives those are clear signs of idolatry and i can't hide those and say well god's doing stuff in my life because you're doing stuff in Israel, and yet they fell to idolatry. Well, Jesus is changing. God's doing some amazing things. That's true, but that was true in Corinth. And yet they were so twisted. Lord, don't let us justify. Don't let us hide. Lord, if we have an idolatrous issue, if the signs of idolatry are present in our life, Lord, through your Spirit, could you just would you bring us to a place of great humility before the cross? Would you cause our hearts to yearn for you? And Lord, will you not only reveal any sign of idolatry in our life, but Lord, will you allow us to realize the, the severity, the intensity of what it means to walk in idolatry? Because in walking in idolatry, I am declaring that you are not enough. That your power is not sufficient that I need something other than you.
to satisfy the depths of my life. And Lord, I can't have that. I don't want that. I want you to be everything that I need for life and for godliness. I want to participate, partake of your divine nature. So Lord, will you bring us to the cross? Will you show us our need? And in so doing, show us how much we need Jesus, the Savior. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.